You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We are looking tonight at English preaching and preachers in the 19th century. As best we can, we have an enormity of material to work through tonight, so we're going to have to uh, move steadily along uh, through this if we're going to get through all of the things that we have to cover tonight. So let's ask the Lord to bless and, and multiply our time so that we'll be able to get through it. Father, we're thankful to you for this day that you've given to us. Father, we're amazed at your kind mercies to us in Christ, and we pray, Lord, that we would have greater understanding and appreciation and gratitude for all of the ways in which you have loved us and have provided for us and have cared for us, Lord, and we pray that we will express to you our gratitude through faithful living and holy lives. Father, I thank you for these men who are studying and preparing to serve you in whatever capacity you assign to them, Lord, and I pray for your blessings upon them. And Father, tonight as we look at these um, historical circumstances and at these preachers in the 19th century in England. Father, uh, we're coming ever closer to our own time period, and I pray that we'll have not only an appreciation for what they did and for what they faced as they, uh, many of them, stood faithful to proclaim your word, but Father, I pray that we'll be able to apply these things to our lives and to our own ministry contexts that will be faithful in like manner and will point others to your glorious Son. And Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, um, jumping right into it then, the preaching of 19th century England usually is not where I start. Usually I start with a historical uh, material first, but I'm just hitting just a few lines of introductory material that relates to preaching first, and then we're going to take the historical part and break it down into three periods. So first of all, let's look at the overall view of the preaching in the 19th century. Uh, as uh, Dargan writes, the British character and intellect in both their strength and their weaknesses, the preachers, appears in the pulpit of the 19th century. Questions of ecclesiastical polity and practice, affairs of ritual and forms of worship, profound problems of theology, practical questions of immense importance concerning benevolence and missions were on the minds of the people. And again, that's not just the preachers, but that was on the minds of, of so many who were coming to church and so many who were involved in worship services. These things were on their minds in one way or another. And so there was a lot uh, that had to be you know, taken care of and addressed from the pulpit regularly if they were going to be faithful to their people. Dargan also says, at no time among no people does the Christian pulpit appear to have greater advantage on the whole than in Great Britain during the 19th century. And again, this is a long century, lots of things happening in the course of those hundred years, but the, the pulpit had great influence among, again, many groups, not just the Baptists, but many groups, uh, many circumstances, some of, the, some of those folks very committed to the, to the Lord and to the church, some loosely committed, but nevertheless, the pulpit was having an influence. From every perspective, intellectual power, depth of thought, literary criticism, practical value, spiritual activity. The 19th century English pulpit occupies an exalted place among Christian preaching. So we need to keep that in mind as we get into these historical specifics and talk about the different periods of what took place in the 19th century in Britain and England. Again, we sometimes use those terms interchangeably. Of course, we know Britain encompasses more than just England, uh, but sometimes in, in, in even in Dargan's work, he uses those two uh, words interchangeably. Now, in the 19th century... England reached her highest point in greatness. 
Uh, she was already arriving there, uh, headed that way in the 18th century, and in the 19th, she reaches her highest pinnacle in achievement. Dargan writes, military and travel prowess, commercial and industrial progress, p- social and political achievement, literary, scientific, and artistic work all constitute a crown of glory for this great and widely spread people in this age. No detraction can tarnish, nor even real and confessed fault can spoil. Uh, that's a very eloquent, eloquent, elegant way of saying it, I think. Uh, in the religious sphere, great men, great ideas, and great movements were evident. Now, we've got to break this down to make it a little bit more manageable for us. So we're looking at three divisions, early, middle, and later, uh, 1801 to 1833, which is the beginning of the century, all the way up to the Oxford movement, which we'll talk about when we get there. And then from there until 1868, which is uh, the time of the disestablishment of the Irish Church, and then lastly, that from that point to the end of the 19th century. So let's talk about the first third uh, and its history. What took place in that first third, those, those first few years, 1800-1833. Britain was engaged in a colossal duel early on with Napoleon, ending at Waterloo in 1815. We talked about that in our last period. The war with the United States, that's the War of 1812, ended with Andrew Jackson's victory at New Orleans in 1815. I believe, historically, peace already had been achieved at that point, had been declared it's done, but the battle still had to be fought and was fought. And Andrew Jackson had a decisive victory. Several important, particularly commercially important, battles, campaigns, and advances were made in India and Australia. George III, again, that king that America uh, dealt with during the days of the American Revolution, he lost his reason because of sickness in 1810, and so it was time for a successor, the Prince of Wales. His son was made Prince Regent, and he reigned until 1820 when George III actually died, and then uh, so he became George IV, and he ruled for 10 additional years. He was particularly incapable of ruling, and he was a very immoral person. Dargan says he lived without respect and died without lament. So that's a pretty sad epitaph for you. William IV, his brother, ruled for seven additional years after taking the throne in 1830. Now, so that's basically who was ruling during this period of time. In 1801, the Act of Union with Ireland led to the discontinuance of the Irish Parliament and to the persistent agitations which have characterized the relationship between them and Britain to this day. Now, of course, this, this, these are looking at, this, this is coming, I'm sorry, from sources that are, you know, 60, 70 years old and more. But still, we know that there are still some uh, tensions between Ireland and Britain even uh, in, our, in our day today. Now, some oppressive laws against Catholics were repealed, and Ireland uh, was represented in the British Parliament by Daniel O'Connell. That was a very significant uh, addition to the British Parliament of the Irish, Daniel O'Connell, in 1829. In these early years of the century, slavery was systematically dismantled and finally abolished in 1833. Other advances were made in society. Cruel laws were removed. Prisons were reformed, child labor was repressed, and philanthropy and education were advanced. And you can see a lot of these things are social reforms. A lot of these things have to do with the people. And you can see the, the you know, potential connections for church involvement in a lot of these areas. 
with trying to you know, help and minister and support and encourage and so forth. Industrial advances were made as well, but these improvements were accompanied by great suffering among those laborers who were being replaced by machines and losing their means of income. Of course, those kinds of concerns are still with us today. Machines uh, ever increasing in technology and complexity, uh, continuing to replace actual laborers and workers. The first railway in England was operated by George Stevenson in 1830. In literature, England's greatness is very apparent during this period. Uh, intellectual activity and literary achievement just abounded in this age. We've already mentioned Burns and Cooper from our last lecture who were active in the 18th century and their contributions endured into the 19th as well. Poetry was rep represented by the likes of such masters as George Gordon, Lord Byron, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, John Keats. Remember his famous quote, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Um, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley and William Wordsworth and so on. Uh, Jane Austen and Walter Scott were notables in the field of fiction writing. There were, of course, many other essayists, orators, politicians, debaters uh, in that period of time. So with that historical background, let's, let's think for a minute about preaching in this first third of the 19th century. Religious life was characterized by much activity and movement, the same things we've just talked about here. Evangelical and missionary impulses were advanced largely due to momentum from the latter 18th century. Remember, we talked about the establishment of the Baptist Missionary Society, 1792, with Fuller and Carey and others involved in that. A great enterprise, Carey going to the mission field in India, the first foreign missionary, and, um, and, and there were many others that followed and went to other places around the globe as well. So lots of good things beginning to advance in terms of missionary work. Uh, the British and Foreign Bible Society was formed in 1804. Humane and charitable work at home and abroad became increasingly prevalent. Remember, we just talked a minute ago about all those reforms that needed to be made for the poor and for the otherwise disenfranchised, and this is one of the ways in which they could be addressed. Uh, theological opinion and the rise of parties and schools of thought were evident. And um, when we get to talking about early uh, American uh, re religion and preaching and so forth in the early part of the 19th century. Remember, there are all kinds of things going on in America at this time with the Second Great Awakening and all of the errant uh, movements that, that sprang from that. And we'll talk about that, of course, in our next lecture. That's going to be a lot of fun. The Evangelical Party was in its prime, but its prevalence would begin to diminish by the end of this third of the century. So, so, again, the evangelical is still uh, in prominence, but it's going to begin to wane dramatically as the century moves on. While it continued to make important contributions to society, its critics were voluminous and pointed. Uh, talking about the evangelical society of, uh, party, of course. In the Church of England, three parties, low, high, and broad, were distinguishable. Evangelicalism was identified with that low church party. And again, that's going to be basically the case all throughout this century. The Broad Church Party began to gain power under such men as Coleridge, Whatley, and Arnold. Remember, we talked in our last lecture about how the Broad Church largely were latitudinarian before. Again, that's that sort of middle-of-the-road kind of position that's 
they're they're fine about going to church, but they don't want the church and doctrine and theology and so forth to weigh too heavily. They want to be able to kind of work with the dual authority of their own reason and the Holy Spirit. And so that's kind of the latitudinarian position. And broad, the Broad Church Party was originally connected with that philosophy. And the High Church group uh, was not as prevalent, but soon would take the ascendancy and the rise of the Oxford movement. Again, we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Among the dissenters, again, the non-Church of England folks, the evangelicals were the most prominent, but liberalism was not non-existent, particularly among the Unitarians within the English Presbyterian Church. In the opening era of the 19th century, the blight of the latitudinarian schools of the 18th century was still present. The evangelical pullman, again, low church party, was the strongest. I'm sorry, we're we're out of talking about C of E. We're back into the, the dissenting area, but it was not the only message that was proclaimed in that period. So they many pulpits were preaching the gospel, but many were not necessarily preaching on the gospel topics. They were preaching on other things. Uh, evangelical preaching often appealed mostly to human feelings. Again, so again, uh, taking more uh, of the human response into account uh, as sermons were prepared and delivered, uh, not, not usually a, a very positive sign when it comes to faithfulness and preaching. Sermons were delivered, with, were with, delivered without manuscripts, so the printed sermons of the day do not fully approximate what was delivered from the pulpit. Uh, and, and that's true. And you have to consider whenever you read a sermon that is printed, you, you need to be able to ascertain if you can, you know, was that sermon a, a manuscript or was that augmented and edited or even altogether compiled after the message itself was delivered? Uh, because obviously the two can be quite different. Now, many criticized the preaching of this period. Reginald Heber, whose name you may recognize, cautioned young clergymen to avoid singularities, meaning peculiarities, idiosyncrasies, and not to be the high churchman who shuffles in a pompous tone through his nose and the evangelical minister who preaches extempore. Now, the greatest preachers of these early decades of the 19th century were Robert Hall, Jr., whom we've talked about in depth, Edward Irving, and Thomas Chalmers. Now, we'll talk a little bit about Chalmers in a moment. It's truly unfortunate that time does not permit a deeper analysis of Irving, who was a very accomplished and godly preacher. And again, we've got so much material in front of us, it is unfortunate that we don't have time to look at a lot of these men, not only, again, from, from England, but also from the other uh, areas around England, from Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and other places. Uh, so many individuals, so many of them with, with helpful and encouraging stories. We just don't have time to look at them, unfortunately. Now, the style and contents of 19th century sermons were uh, of interest. Doctrine still held basically to orthodox evangelical convictions and had not varied greatly, yet it would begin to drift, but it hasn't really yet High churchmen emphasized the sacraments and decried the evangelicals for their excitement. Dargan cites this quotation from an unknown source. Hall, Robert Hall, redeemed dissent from vulgarity. So the reference it's making to Hall is that he was such a good preacher and that he was preaching faithful doctrinal sermons uh, that were true to Scripture. He was himself a redeeming factor for all of those dissenters in that period. Otherwise, they would have just, uh, many of them lapsed into uh, 
really non-existence. Now, the broad churchmen were critical of virtually everyone else, not surprising, implying that their belief that they exclusively possessed wisdom and moderation, uh, but, but they were not usually bitter about it. Isn't that nice? Um, again, at this point, the, the, you're going to see these parties staying in place throughout the entirety of the century. It's going to become, in the middle, easier to kind of tell who's who, and then in the later part of the century, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to tell who's who because their, their uh, respective boundaries are going to begin to overlap with each other. Uh, their views, the broad churchmen, were not too far off course from orthodox convictions, but some of them were, and both broad and high churchmen opposed the Calvinism of the evangelicals. So it's difficult for all three of these groups to get along, but they usually did in spite of their differences. Stylistically, the most significant trait was the abundance of individual methods in preaching, but overall the attempt at precision Carefulness, there's that word again from last lecture, and elegance, all of this, again, being external in nature, not content-wise, but on the surface, the way in which it was delivered, how it looked and and was perceived. Uh, Those things that had been seen in the 18th century still existed into the 19th, and there was an obvious lack of flexibility, familiarity, and humanness. Preaching was too aloof from life, regardless of how accomplished it was in other respects. Now, the sermons were topical, not expository, okay? So they still have biblical elements. They're just not taking a text and letting the text sort of set the tone for the message, letting the text define the points, define how the message flows. Biblical interpretation was traditional and superficial, not yet scientific and critical. But again, that's coming. We're going to see, you know, influence of German higher criticism coming in the latter part of this century. So it's, it's on its way. John Newton, who lived a very long life, and even though he was active in the 18th century, he's still active in the 19th, uh, still encouraging people like William Wilberforce and others still uh, very much involved in preaching and serving the Lord. The Clapham sect was also preaching during this era. They were a group of Anglican social reformers based in Clapham, London, a network of friends and families with William Wilberforce at its center. Other members of this Clapham sect uh, were Henry Venn, who is famous for the Venn diagram. If you don't know what that is, that's where you have, you know, two two spheres, and, and when they overlap, you know, you've got a, a sort of a, a third group you know, formed with the overlap of those two areas. And, of course, you can have multiple overlappings, and that's what that diagram does, is allow you to see everything together at once. Granville Sharp, if you've taken Greek, you've heard of the Granville Sharp rule about the conjunction chi. Uh, Hannah Moore and Charles Simeon. Um, I had originally included some material on Charles Simeon in this uh, material for tonight, and I had to take it out because I just got too much in here. So we didn't get to talk about him, but he was an important preacher of that period and uh, well worth our time. But instead, I substituted Thomas Chalmers, uh, who uh, was born in the 18th century but did most of his service in the 19th. He was the greatest Presbyterian preacher of the age. He was both famous and eloquent. Among Scottish preachers, Chalmers was second only to John Knox. He possessed intellect and abilities in other fields, such as mathematics and moral philosophy. 
He was also a practical pastor, laboring among his parish and organizing charitable work. He led what's called the Great Disruption of 1843, which began the Free Church of Scotland. Okay, so you had the Scottish Church or the Church of England in Scotland, however you want to understand that, but the disruption caused a schism, caused a division between that group. Some of those pastors pulled away and formed the Free Church of Scotland, so they're no longer under the authority of the Church of England, and they can kind of make their own decisions, decide who's going to be their pastors, and and so forth, Uh, have a lot of independence that way. In some ways, it kind of, uh, you know, reminds us of Baptist autonomy. Of course, Baptists are free churches, if you go by that definition of not being under anyone else's authority. He attended, Chalmers attended the University of St. Andrews, where his faculties lay dormant until his third year. I mean, he just kind of floated along as a student, and then his third year, all, everything seemed to click, and he began to apply himself admirably to his studies. Even with his other academic interests, he, he pursued the ministry in accordance with the wishes of his family and friends. <clears throat> However, Chalmers was not yet converted. He had eloquent prayers and obvious gifts of expression. He was, li- he was licensed to preach at 19. Uh, he served as, <laughs> as pastor uh, at Kilmany for 12 years while also serving as mathematics professor at St. Andrews. Not surprisingly, again, with, without the Holy Spirit you know, filling and leading and controlling him, um, his early ministry was not marked by deep devotion or piety, though he was conscientious regarding his duties. So again, you can be very moral and still be very lost. You can, be, you can be very moral, very dedicated, very good citizen, very faithful churchgoer, but you can still be very lost all at the same time. Um, again, this sort of harkens back to Elias Keach, Benjamin Keach's son, who came over to America and began to imitate his famous preaching father, uh, even wore his preaching garb and, and preached to the people as if he were like his father and as if he were a Christian, and yet uh, we know that he came under conviction under his own preaching and, and marked his conversion from that point when he was preaching here in the United States. Well, in Pennsylvania at that time. Now, he did, however, Chalmers did come to a point of crisis, which resulted in a very pronounced conversion for him when he was 31 years old. Several factors apparently played a part in that conversion. He was asked, number one, to write an encyclopedia article on Christianity, So while engaged in that research to write the article, he was forced to set aside his mathematical interests, which allowed him to engage Christian truth with greater attention and detail so he could think about it more. Number two, about this time, he also battled a serious illness, which caused him to have a lot more sober judgment. Number three, one of his sisters died. He was the sixth of 14 children, so he had a large family, and one of his dear sisters passed away, and this left an impact on him. And number four, all throughout this time, he read Wilberforce's, that's William Wilberforce's, A Practical View of Christianity. I've got the ellipsis in there because the title of that work is about that long. It's huge. Uh, But that's where it starts and where it ends, A Practical View of Christianity. Now, from this point forward, his faith, his newfound faith, affected the manner in which he undertook his work. His preaching and pastoral ministry possessed a newfound vitality, which excited his congregation and prompted further conversions. Chalmers prepared a very important series of sermons, Astronomical Discourses. Uh, As someone with a background in science, I found this very interesting uh, to read about. Uh, He was um, 
let's skip down. We'll just we'll stay on, on on topic for a minute. Right there, toward the end of this section, his astronomical discourses were delivered in response to some opponents of Christianity who were using recent discoveries in astronomy to undermine faith. In particular, the observation of the vastness of the universe was being used to downplay the importance of man as creation's crown, or as the the high point of God's creative work. Chalmers' mastery of science, excellent judgment, and faithful Christian foundation made these sermons a remarkably apt response. Uh, So he was able to respond very well uh, to these attempts to use science to downplay the significance and, uh, and, and the substance of reason, of uh, faith, but uh, he was able to make clear that the faith was really worth having faith in. Now back up to the top of the page there. He was also professor of theology at St. Andrews for 15 years, uh, again, up until 1843. Again, that's the time of the, uh, d- the separation with the Free Church of Scotland. He led the way for that to happen, and soon afterwards, he became professor in the Free Church College in Edinburgh and served there until the end of his life. So after the Free Church was formed, other Free Church-related institutions came along with that, and so the Free Church College of Edinburgh uh, was a place where he was able to serve because he no longer was going to be able to serve in the established church. Now, one of his biographers cites this important quote from Chalmers' journals. It's a prayer. Lord, extinguish my love of praise, O God. And now that my name is afloat on the public, let me cultivate an indifference to human applause. And guys, I think that's something that all of us need uh, to be sure that we remember and that we pray, pray in this spirit on a regular basis. Uh, it is natural and it is human to crave accolades, to crave pats on the back, to, create, to, to crave that kind of um, applause and recognition, but certainly the glory isn't ours, the glory is the Lord's. So let's be sure to give it where it belongs. Now, Chalmers read his sermons from the pulpit, he read them, he wrote them out and read them, but he invested in his delivery all the fire and further, fervor which normally accompany extemporaneous speaking. So he was reading from a manuscript. Everything basically was written out. But he was putting so much heart and soul, so much passion, so much life, so much energy into the way he was reading this. And, of course, he was familiar with it, having prepared it. Uh, So he was able to hold the attention of the audience, even though he might not even be looking at them very much in the course of his delivery. So, and then, and this for him at least, was very successful and worked very well. And he was able to uh, hold people's attention, and many came to listen to him uh, deliver these messages. Robert Hall said of him, Did you ever know any man who had that singular faculty of repetition possessed by Dr. Chalmers? In the previous note, it says that he had the interesting habit of repeating the same idea over and over throughout his messages with a variety of expressive means. And this is what Hall is saying about him. Why, sir, he often reiterates the same thing 10 or 12 times in the course of a few pages. His mind resembles a kaleidoscope. Every turn presents the object in a new and beautiful form, but the object is still the same. So, so Hall's being very complimentary of Chalmers here. And, and certainly, um, Chalmers, again, if you're going to be reading 
uh, to, to bring to, to your delivery all of these kinds of means and methods to hold the audience's attention, to make sure that they don't lose uh, focus on what you're delivering, what you're talking about. Uh, th- this was just an excellent thing for him to do. It worked very well for him. Dargan says, this set of discourses, the astronomical discourses that, that we talked about a moment ago, ranks high among the best specimens of British oratory. And there's lots of specimens of British oratory to consider. And so for that comment to be able to be made here uh, means that they were particularly significant. So uh, some good things here from uh, Mr. Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers. Now, let's move into the middle part of the 19th century. Let's talk about what was happening historically in that middle portion, and then we'll look at the the preaching preachers and religious environment in that middle part of the century. So, in in the second third, this era saw a fruitful time among the British people. The death of the inefficient William IV in 1837 brought about the lengthy and brilliant reign of Queen Victoria. And um, just as an aside, I don't know, I mean, I certainly can't endorse everything about uh, this particular movie, but a few years ago there was a a movie made uh, starring Judi Dench, the actress, as Queen Victoria, and the film was called Mrs. Brown. And it it takes um, a look at her mourning period. Her husband, Prince Albert, died. He largely was was helping her to lead in, in the early years of her Rain, because she was still very young at that time, and and then she then he died, and she was in a long period of mourning. And you see Benjamin Disraeli uh, trying to hold things together while she's mourning, and you see all of these things about disestablishing the Irish Church, and you see these other things coming to the fore, and, and the parties trying to wrestle it out in Parliament, and you see these things going on behind the scenes. So I think in a lot of ways it's a very interesting movie, uh, even if all of it may or may not be completely accurate. I'd encourage you to at least check it out and, and see what you think about it. There were a few wars of great consequence during this middle period of the 19th century, although there were some, so no, no great wars, but some notable conflicts with China, Russia, and India. Of course, they're still in, in the process of bringing uh, about the Indian conquest at this point. Political matters primarily involved struggles between parties and statesmen, Freedoms and social issues, religious liberty, the general progress of education, and other improvements occupied the minds of the nation and prompted thought and oratory of some of the greatest statesmen of modern times, such as Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone. These were uh, two prime ministers who alternated back and forth. One was elected, and then the other was elected, and then the other was elected, back and forth for about four cycles all throughout the middle and latter part of the 19th century. So they were just back and forth, Gladstone and Disraeli, back and forth, uh, leading uh, the nation as prime minister. Uh, Literature was well represented throughout this period. Significant poets included Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Robert Browning, Matthew Arnold, fiction notably written by Charles Dickens, George Eliot, remember George Eliot was a lady, and the Bronte sisters. Science and Philosophy, anchored by Michael Faraday, Charles Darwin, Aldous Huxley. You've heard those names, no doubt, before, sometimes perhaps not in the most glowing of contexts, but uh, you've heard them, nevertheless. 
So with all that in mind, about the middle of the 19th century, let's think about preaching in that time period. The religious events and movements were important also in this segment of the century. Enlarged political privileges for Catholics and dissenters saw increased growth and toleration. So, so think about this. You know, you, you still have um, very obvious distinctions between those who are Anglican, Church of England, and those who aren't uh, in the nation, even though that's been... Uh, relieved or at least lessened in, in severity by the act of toleration all the way back 1688 with the glorious revolution. But still here, 100, 150 years later, there's still um, some uh, obstacles that they've had to overcome. So some of these things were, were eased and greater toleration occurred. Those favoring disestablishing the Anglican Church in Ireland or the Irish Church were on the increase. It, it was coming. It, it's going to happen. Uh, Popularity was continuing to rise for that. The low, high, and broad church groups were more distinct at this point. That's going to change in the latter part of the century, but right now they're even more obvious. They're even more clear than they were in the earlier part of the century. Criticism, both historical and philosophical criticism, of Christianity became rife and a decided and painful hostility arose on the part of many scientific investigators and thinkers toward the long-accepted facts and doctrines of the faith. Many churchmen seeking to adhere both to current trends in scientific thought and the essentials of Christian tradition was commonplace within the broad church group. Are you surprised? Again, this is the, the group that basically is trying to ride the fence. This is the one that's basically trying to hold a middle-of-the-road position between these two extremes. And so they're trying to say, yeah, we can have our science and we can have our faith at the same time. But again, you're not going to be able to do that forever. But, um, you know, the same thing is true in America. Just, it just happens a little bit later in America, but you have the same thing. You have the... the, the Concept coming over across the pond to America that, hey, maybe God didn't create man after all. Maybe he did evolve. Maybe he did come about through natural processes and wasn't actually made by the divine hand of God. Maybe that's what happened. And when Americans begin to believe that, they start... I mean, that's just, that just starts all kinds of repercussions for, for faith and for the church and for our nation as a whole. And you see that happening directly, and you see the consequences of it even down to our day right now. Now, humanitarian and social improvements also increased in this period, particularly in the improvements of the poor and the laboring, trying to help them out. A savage hostility still around but, uh, toward the capitalists, resulting from many workers losing their jobs and being replaced with machines. Again, as those machines become more complex, as they become able to do more things and replace more workers, you have more and more people who are becoming frustrated and, and downright antagonistic uh, toward those who have replaced them. Not surprisingly, dissenting groups had some parallels to the various Anglican parties. Um, we're not going to go into a great detail about those, but, but there were a lot of parallels there. Again, you have you, know, you take a particular group or denomination or movement, and, and within their ranks, they've got some folks who can kind of identify with the high church or the low church or the broad church. English Presbyterians, we talked about this, I think, in the last lecture, had become so infected with Unitarianism that they nearly ceased to be a distinctive denomination at all. 
Uh, they were so affected by this such a corrupt and, and heretical uh, system of belief that they almost lost their whole denominational integrity. Baptists and independents occasionally saw leanings toward Arian or Socinian views. But for the most part, evangelical principles were maintained within these nonconformist churches and preachers. Now, in 1847, the United Presbyterian Church was formed in Scotland from two groups who were there, the Seceders and the Relief Presbyterians. Don't have a lot of time to go into what all that means or what all that is, but that was a significant move for the Presbyterians in Scotland. Now, in 1843, again, just a few years prior to that, under Chalmers' leadership, we just talked about him, 400 ministers withdrew from the established church and formed the Free Church of Scotland. This is commonly called the disruption, but it resulted in a lot of good things. Uh, The churches were able to select their own pastors. They were able to adhere to more evangelical doctrine and so forth. So rather than remain in constant disputes back and forth with the established church, this new arrangement allowed both groups to focus on their common interests. They weren't at odds nearly as much as they would have been had they remained together, and this way they were able to do uh, more together than they could uh, while unified. Among the high church, the Oxford or Tractarian movement occurred. Now, most of the original participants in, the, in this movement were from Oxford, and there were so many tracts and other publications made during this time, that's where this movement gets its name from, the Oxford movement or the Tractarian movement. This movement sought to reinstate some older traditions into Anglican liturgy and theology. The movement occurred in part due to debates over the status of the Irish church. Legislated changes in church leadership and the status of ecclesiastical property, namely the buildings and the land the churches were built on, were among the most significant issues. Many of those who led this movement became Catholics. Okay, so what you have happening here is, in a lot of ways, a return to Catholicism. Uh, it's, it, it keeps rearing its head uh, among the, the Anglicans. It keeps coming back. This movement eventually developed into Anglo-Catholicism and led to an interest in theological and religious thinking in England. So again, with, with this happening, a lot of people are starting to think about these matters. They're thinking about theology. They're thinking about what's right, what's wrong with what the church is doing. How, how is it going to affect me? All kinds of things. They're thinking about these things. So in one sense, that's good. But in another sense, unfortunately, a lot of very unfortunate things were taking place. Some notable preachers of this age were of that party. Uh, John Keeble, John Henry Newman are significant. Uh, I know John Henry Newman in particular, you know, was Anglican. He became Catholic. Uh, he eventually joined the Roman Catholic Church. The, so the Oxford movement, the Tractarian movement, was a very significant uh, transition uh, for some uh, in this period of time. Uh, in a lot of ways, a very unfortunate transition, uh, a return to Catholicism, a return to uh, being anchored to so many of those Catholic traditions that were not biblical and that were not uh, able to be supported by the others. Dissenting preachers, changing gears now, were represented by several standouts during this period, such as John Angel James. Uh, you've heard of him. Uh, I hope He's, he was a, a great preacher and pastor. Um, I've been encouraged by him on a number of occasions, reading some of his quoted material. He's, he was a great man. 
And with just a few minutes that are left in this lecture, let's at least try to get through part of the last third of the 19th century in terms of its history. The last of the 19th century period also saw the last half of Queen Victoria's reign. Again, she reigned a long time. Remember, she had her, her jubilee period, so she was uh, in power for many, many years. Uh, many affairs of great interest and significance affected not only the extended empire, but with the empire being worldwide, it affected the, the whole world uh, as well. Gladstone, William Gladstone, prime minister at times, who was liberal in party, and Benjamin Disraeli, who was of the conservative party. Again, they alternated back and forth as prime minister, both in that middle part, latter part of the middle part, and the later third of the 19th century. Reforms in suffrage, again, women trying to get the right to vote, the disestablishment of the Irish church, educational policies, home rule for Ireland, colonial and foreign interests, particularly in the East and in Africa. All those things required that political and party interests were always keen, ready to act. Victoria's closing years of her reign were darkened, made somewhat gloomy by the Boer War in South Africa. Uh, universities during this time became open to dissenters. Finally, 1871, I mean, think about it. This is nearly 200 years after the Act of Toleration. Uh, and yet, universities were not open to dissenters during all of these past two centuries, almost. The claims of the poor and the laboring classes were recognized, and many abuses were addressed. <clears throat> so again, uh, these reforms, these social issues uh, were, were still front and center and needed to be dealt with. Commerce, manufacturing, and the industrial arts were all advanced in many ways. Literature continued to increase, increase across the board. Darwin's Origin of Species, 1859, was followed closely by Aldous Huxley's The Descent of Man, 1871, which kept scientific and philosophical thoughts abreast in the minds of people. So again, they're, they're thinking, you know, again, is man created? Did man just occur naturally as a result of natural processes? Uh, you also have in areas of fiction, uh, areas of literature, you have fiction being written by people like Robert Hardy, Robert Louis Stevenson, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and Rudyard Kipling, and so forth. So again, you recognize those names and the works that these men produced in this last third of the 19th century. Let's talk about preaching and other religious matters in the last third of the century. In the sphere of religion, parties of the establishment and nonconformist bodies were very similar. Again, the parties that were of the Anglican orientation and those that were nonconformist or dissenters were very similar. The high, low, and broad parties of the Anglican Church were no longer as distinguishable as formerly. Again, their, their, their boundaries are indefinite. Their, their boundaries are no longer distinct. They're, they're cloudy. They're unclear. Why? Number one, there was greater tolerance and mutual respect between parties and sects. Okay, so with this greater tolerance, with this greater attempt to kind of be respectful of each other's positions, it wasn't always clear where one started, where another started, stopped and started. Number two, there was a fight against materialism and a reaction to mysticism. A lot of mysticism was on the rise in this latter part of the 19th century. And number three, there was uh, an increase in social, social ameliorization.
amelioration, excuse me. And so, again, a lot of, a lot of these factors had an effect upon these, these three parties. Again, low church and broad in the Anglicans. There were parallels in the dissenting churches, just not necessarily with those names or exactly those same traits, but similar characteristics. And here's the reason for their blurred boundaries. In this era, the low, uh, low church parties were more conservative in the evangelical traditions and in doctrine. Again, they have been all along. Uh, the high church group, here it comes, was inclined gr- more toward ritualism, social betterment, and mystical piety. There's your increase in mysticism coming in this latter part of the century. And the broad church, they were sympathetic with liberalism in scientific areas and with German biblical criticism. Again, trying to hold a middle-of-the-road position. You know, there, there's no absolute truth, uh, and they were sort of in the middle there somewhere. Again, as they were imbibing deeply of this German critical thought, uh, it was severely downplaying major doctrinal positions of the Bible and, of course, of the church. Among dissenters, both conservative, evangelical, and liberal rationalistic distinctions remained. The free churches in Scotland and England were divided along these lines. So, again, the same sort of problem happening there. Not exactly the same as with the Anglican church, but similarities, nevertheless. Christianity was struggling to adjust itself to the scientific and critical attack upon its fundamental tenets, to participate without loss of distinctive Christian aims and motives in social progress, and to find refuge from weakening faith in confessional documents and the encroachments of worldliness on the life of piety. So confessional documents were becoming weaker. It's, it's going to happen even among your Baptists. You also have uh, worldliness continuing to invade uh, people's piety, people's uh, attempt to live lives of holiness before the Lord, and so you just have uh, a constant battle there. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.